3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. If you would, grab your Bibles and open up to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, we're looking at the first five verses here at this time. And as we begin our time together, allow me to pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, we do indeed ask for your blessing upon this, the reading of your word, and now our listening and understanding, meditating upon it. Father, we ask for your blessing because we know that on our own, uh, we would be deficient, that we would not capture the gospel meaning that is present here, not simply because of our ignorance intellectually, but overwhelmingly because of the hindrance of our sin and our brokenness within us. Lord, as you have done so, we pray you would continue to break through that barrier, to shed your light upon us, so that we might know, worship you, and follow you more faithfully, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. I don't know how long you have been following the Lord, but assuming that many of you have been following Him for some time, you have probably captured the vision of a healthy, vibrant Christian life that both the Scriptures portray, that we share with one another, that you see modeled often here at church and pictured at church as something that we hold forward as saying, hey, there's a Christian life that is out there, a faithful, glorious Christian life, where not where all the pains of life are removed, nothing in Scripture ever indicates that, nothing in our Christian experience indicates that, but there's enough of our Christian experience and enough of the scriptural witness that hints at this glorious opportunity that we have to live faithfully before the Lord, that there's an abundant life that is there, that is out there, a, a, a life full of blessings, a life full of of, yes, victory over uh, the sin in our lives and over the difficulties in our lives. Not victory that they never happen, but victory that we would go through life with the kind of a faith that honors and pleases our Lord. And there's that, that desire, that burning passion, I think, within most of us to, to live that kind of a life. If you're like me, there's also the experience, the recognition that that doesn't always happen. Indeed, it rarely happens. I rarely live my life in that victorious, abundant, blessed type of an experience that I know the Scripture wants from me, that I know God wants from me. I interact with most people here, and most people have that same yearning, a sense that there's something there, and yet they're just not fulfilling it totally and completely. Now, there's lots of reasons for that, and I don't want to minimize that. There are lots of different reasons that there, there might be that we don't live that victorious life that the Lord has planned for us. But I certainly think that this, pa- pic- this passage pictures one of the main reasons, at least is one of the main reasons that I run into in my own experience. Why is it 
that there's just that thing that holds me back from that wonderful experience of the fullness of my salvation that I see pictured in the Scriptures and that calling forth from me and from the people in which I work with and minister with, what, what holds us back from that? Well, this passage, I think, hits on some of that. So if you grab your Bibles and if you'll open it up again to Zechariah, Zechariah is all the way towards the end of the Old Testament. Probably easiest is to find it, find Matthew, and then go towards the front a little bit. Uh, one of the last two books in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 3. Now, Zechariah is a prophet of the Lord, and similar to a lot of prophets, he has visions. So a little bit different than some of the other prophets is that almost the entire book of Zechariah are these visions that he has. Uh, and so it's a record of us, of his accounting of the visions in which he has. So the passage begins in verse 1 with, Then he showed me, then he showed me. Okay, uh, the he there is at the very beginning of the book of Zechariah. We're introduced to Zechariah's spirit guide of sort. is an angel who shows him and walks him through and says, Hey, here are a series of visions. And so this passage opens by saying, Hey, this spirit guide, this... This angel shows me these different visions. So what's the vision then that the angel, this vision guide, shows to Zechariah? He shows him Joshua, the high priest. Now, some of you are going to be familiar with the, with the name Joshua and will probably associate him with Moses' right-hand man. Joshua was the successor for Moses. Joshua was the one that led the Israelites through Canaan and conquered Canaan. Joshua is the one who wrote the book there that named after Joshua. And so it would probably be right and proper for us to associate the name with Joshua with that biblical character. However, this Joshua, the Joshua we're looking at today, is a Joshua that happens about 500 years later. Some of you will know biblical history, will know that for a long time Israel's kings ruled within the land. There was a civil war. There were two different kingdoms. They got taken away into captivity. And then after 70 years in captivity, the Israelites were allowed to come back to their homeland. This, Joshua, is one of the leaders of that group of people that came back from the homeland. Indeed, he was probably the primary leader, the primary religious leader at least. And so he had a huge name. He was a well-respected individual within Israel's history. The word Joshua, meaning the Lord saves, is the same word that gets transliterated then into Greek as Jesus. So Jesus, uh, our Savior, was most likely identified and named after this Joshua, not probably Moses' Joshua, but rather this Joshua here, who was the high priest of Israel. Now he's the high priest of Israel, and we see him, or Zechariah sees him and tells us about it, that the uh, high priest, Joshua the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, you're going to have to take my word for this because I don't have time to actually defend it or, to, or support it. Uh, but a lot of biblical scholars, and I'm one of them, that would agree that the angel of the Lord is different than what, the way the Scriptures often refer to angels. Scriptures talk a lot about angels and talk about an angel of the Lord or talk about angels of the Lord. But this one is different. This is the angel of the Lord. Four or five times throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord shows up, and usually the angel of the Lord 
is handled or pictured somewhat differently than normal angels. Normal angels, of course, get all the credit and get uh, lots of awe-inspiring response from the people who see them, etc. But the angel of the Lord shows up a number of times in the Scriptures, and the recognition is, or the identification is, that here we have God himself. The angel of the Lord here is simply a manifestation, a representation of God himself. Uh, I can defend that more for you afterward. If you want to catch me right after worship, I'll explain why it is that I think that way, although some of that comes clear even in this passage. So what do we have here? We've got Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, that is, standing before God himself, and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan is standing at his right hand. Now, whose right hand? Because we've got two people so far, two individuals so far. We've got Joshua, the high priest, standing before God himself. And Satan is standing at his right hand. Now this is a vision, as I mentioned earlier. And so it will help you a little bit if you, have, if you imagine it. Try to picture it a little bit. Here we've got Joshua, the high priest. And he's standing before God himself. God is standing here. And, and Joshua is standing before him with Satan at his right hand. Now, Satan is either at God's right hand or he's in Joshua's right hand for reasons which I think will become clear in a second. I think that he's standing at Joshua's right hand. He's standing at Joshua's right hand and then the next line says, to accuse him. Who is Satan accusing? Satan is either accusing, there's only two hymns here, Satan is either accusing God, God, you are such and such, or he is accusing Joshua. Now you've got two different pictures, two different images are being woven together in this vision. One is clearly the, the imagery of a courtroom. You have God as the judge who is standing here and standing before God in the dock, so to speak, is Joshua. Joshua the high priest is standing in a position of being judged by God himself. And I believe it's crystal clear that Satan then is standing at Joshua's right hand, accusing Joshua. This is the experience that I find myself in all too frequently. This is the experience that I find so many of my brothers and sisters in that robs them of the confidence and the assurance to live that life that God has called them to. What is Satan doing? Now, Satan has a couple of rules in Scripture. Satan is the deceiver. Scripture makes it real clear that the deception, that Satan's goal is to deceive us from the truths that God desires for us to understand. Satan also is understood as the tempter. He is the one that not just deceives us, but actually tempts us to move away from the positions that the Lord has for us, for the desires that the Lord has for us. He is the deceiver. He's the tempter. But overwhelmingly, the very name Satan is the Hebrew word, the accuser. Satan is the accuser. And what does he do? He sits there and he whispers at me all the time, who are you to stand before God's people and proclaim God's word to them? Who are you to share the gospel with the co-worker? Who are you to have your Bible open at your desk where somebody could see you and know you for the hypocrite you are. 
Who are you who fails so completely in raising your children that you would raise, that you would want to be involved in the children's ministry at church? Who are you who would want to lead a Bible study when you fail consistently to be a man or a woman of devotional time? Who are you when you claim that you love me and yet you treat me the way that you do? Satan consistently whispering in our ears. And you take... Now, Satan has one goal for the Christian. Satan, for the non-believer, is eager to drag you to hell. For the Christian, that's not an option. For we are held in God's hands, safe and secure. Satan will never get you out of his hands. But if he can't get you out of God's hands, then for sure he is going to make you useless in his kingdom. He is going to make you impotent and worth nothing for furthering his kingdom. And how does he do that? He deceives you. He tempts you. And boy, he accuses you. Who are you? To do this task. Now the other imagery that's woven all the way through this passage is the imagery of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, that, that one day throughout the year where the high priest goes into God's presence and in God's presence says, here is the sin offering for all of the Israelites, for the whole people of God for this past year, all the sin of God's people. Please do not execute your judgment against God's people again this year. Once a year, the Day of Atonement, the Israelite, the high priest, comes in and pleads with God in the Holy of Holies, that, that momentous place where God's presence is pictured dwelling. The high priest comes in and does this. And so here what we have the imagery of, God in the Holy of Holies, and during the Day of Atonement, Joshua, the high priest, coming in here, and the whole time Satan is whispering in his ear, how dare you be the one to bring this sacrifice. Don't you know anything about yourself? Do you really, are you the right person to be bringing this sacrifice before God Himself? And I don't know if Satan has ever done this with Joshua or if he ever does this with you. But if he says, am I wrong? Joshua, really? Am I wrong? Are you some moral paragon? Are you this great religious leader? that you should be the one standing here before God. So then, verse 2, you have God the judge responds. How does God the judge respond? Now, it would be wonderful if God sat there and said to Satan, Hey, Satan, ease up here. Joshua's not that bad of a guy. He tries really hard. Because that's what goes through our minds a lot. But I try really hard. Or the other option is, well, I'm not as bad as I could be. I know, you know, sometimes I do some things that are good. Or I'm not as bad as that other guy over there. Or on balance, if you balance it out, you know, so God says to Satan, hey, Satan, ease up on Joshua because in balance he's more good than bad, so I'll allow him in here. That's not what he says. Verse 2, Then the Lord says to Satan, notice the Lord just shows up, that's why I think he's the angel of the Lord that I mentioned before. The Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Okay, so God the judge is standing here. Joshua comes into God's presence thinking to himself, man, I sure hope God doesn't 
destroy the Israelites today. I hope that this is another day of atonement where he will forgive our sins for another year. Satan is there whispering in his ear the whole time saying, how dare you think you're appropriate to come in here? How, you're the biggest hypocrite in the land. How could you possibly be doing this? And then the judge speaks. And he says, the Lord rebuked you, O, Sa- o Satan. He rebukes not the defendant on trial, Joshua. He rebukes Satan. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now why does he use that title? The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Okay, why doesn't he say, the Lord who loves Joshua so much? Or the Lord who loves all people so much? Or the Lord who made this world? Or the Lord who likes rainbows? Or whatever. I mean, you can say anything. But rather he says, the Lord who chose Jerusalem What's he saying to Satan? What's he reminding Satan of? What's he reminding each one of us? This is the Lord who chose Jerusalem. Jerusalem was just another city. It was just another town. But because of God's calling, because of what God has done, because God chose Jerusalem out of all the cities and made it His own. He's saying to Satan, Satan, this man is standing here because I chose him to stand here. Not because he's morally a great guy. Not because he's perfect. Not because he's a good religious leader. Satan could be right in all of his accusations. Satan doesn't have to accuse me. He doesn't have to make things up to rightly accuse me of failing my Lord. He can just tell me what it is. But when God speaks, God says to Satan, I am rebuking you, Satan, because you forget who I am. I am the God who chooses. And then he says, this brand, don't you see this brand here? This man is a brand who has been snatched from the fire, been plucked from the fire. This man is a burning stick. Now what happens if a burning stick stays in a fire? It gets consumed. It gets burnt up. What should have happened To Joshua, apart from God's action in Joshua's life, he would be consumed, burnt up by the holiness of God. But instead, what does God say to Satan? Remember, Satan, this man is a burning stick. Yes, he deserves judgment. He deserves to be burned up. But he's he's a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire, been plucked by the fire by God Himself. Oh, that we would live our lives that way that we would live our lives not based on our feelings, not based on what we hear, not based on Satan whispering in our ears saying, as a Christian, you're pathetic, if only you were more like this other person who's a better Christian, but rather that we would live our lives saying, I have been chosen by my God. Why does He want me to do this? How does He want me to do this? I don't know those things, but I know this, that He has chosen me. He has plucked me from the fire. And that's the only thing that matters. Oh, that we would live our lives that way. With that kind of uh, commitment. With that kind of a passion. With that kind of an understanding of who you really are in God's eyes. It really are in God's eyes. Not what Satan is whispering in your ear. Not what you might think of yourself. You are what He says of you. And for every believer in this room, you are a burning stick 
that He has snatched from the fire. He has chosen you to be His. And then the judge turns to Joshua, having rebuked Satan. In verse 3, he turns to Joshua, and we see Joshua. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, before the angel, I think again here, before God himself. Now Joshua was standing before God, clothed with filthy garments. Alright, now if you were going to meet with God, you know, most of us don't, uh, filthy, okay, filthy garments here is kind of, a Christianese way of talking. Filthy is not dirty garments. Filthy garments are, are excrement-filled garments. Okay, so, so cesspool-type garments. He, he's standing before God in excrement-filled, you know, really, okay, does everybody get the picture? Okay, good. If you got the picture, then I can quit trying to describe it. Okay, he's standing there in, with, with excrement-filled garments as he's standing before God and you're sitting there thinking, who in their right mind says, hey, i got a meeting with God, I'm going to go dip in a cesspool first. You know, nobody thinks like that. What's he doing standing there filled with excrement clothing here? Well, we know, again, as the Day of Atonement approached, a week beforehand, the priest began the ritual of preparing himself to come into God's presence. Because it's not something that you just do on a wing. There's this preparation that goes into it. And so the priest prepares himself and he cleans himself and he goes through this ritual bathing over and over again, emphasizing the holiness that he is seeking to attain. He's trying to gather all of this stuff. And all of his clothing is just perfect and wonderful. They've got this seamless undergarment, linen undergarment that he puts on. They're very expensive, very difficult to put together. And then he's got this uh, robe, a blue robe, that is supposed to identify himself with heaven and the glories of the blue robe. Then he's got an apron on, an ephod, that ha- is made up of all the colors of the, of the temple and of the, the, uh, the uh, tabernacle, so that he's identified here with the very presence of God. Then he has a, a sash on and a girdle, which is supposed to prepare him for ministry. He's got a turban on his head. He's got, he's got a breastplate. Now this bi- breastplate, you've got a picture of this, um, and if you picture it like a piece of armor breastplate, that's okay. That's not really what it was, but that's close enough. He's got this breastplate. When you first see the priest, you can tell he looks all fancy because he's dressed up that way, but the thing that sticks out is this big breastplate that he has on his chest here and stuff like that. Now, it takes him a week to prepare to come into the presence of God, and yet when he walks into the presence of God, from the vision of Zechariah and God himself, he looks at him and says, you're covered with excrement. This breastplate has 12 stones on the front of it and embedded in each one of the stones, written on each one of the stones is a name. Anybody want to guess what the 12 names are? They're on the 12 tribes of Israel. So the, the priest, and then on this shoulder, he's got six tribes of Israel listed. And on this shoulder, he has six tribes of Israel listed. So when he walks into God's presence, he's carrying with him the whole people of God. He's got all of the Israelites, all of the people of God as he walks into God's presence and he stands there in God's presence carrying the people of God. No wonder you look at him and you say, no matter how much you clean yourself, no matter how wonderful your garments are, you look like you're covered with excrement because he's bearing all the sin of the people 
of all of Israelites as he walks into God's presence. And God looks at him and says, You smell terrible! Get out! What does God do? Verse 3. Verse 3, Joshua is uh, standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. In verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, the angel, that again, God says then to the angels, remove the filthy garments from him. Joshua, all that preparation, all that nervousness of coming into God's presence, knowing that he's bearing the sin of the people, he's caring, he is He's looking like he, all of the sin of all of the Israelites as he comes into God's presence. And what does God say? Not get out of here until you get yourself clean. Not get out of here. I can't stand to be in your presence. But rather, get, this guy, get the sin off of this guy. Get rid of all of that filthy garments. Oh, that we would realize that for every one of us, Every single time we come into God's presence, He says, Your filthy garments have been removed. He reminds us that no matter how badly we stink in our own nostrils, no matter how badly we stink in Satan as he accuses us of being filled with sin, when we come before God, we have been chosen by Him. And He has removed those filthy garments from us. Verse 4, the angel said, remove the filthy garments from him, and then to him, to Joshua himself, the angel says, God says, behold what? Oh, listen to this. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away. I have taken your iniquity away. Not Satan. Not you. Not the people. Not the blood of the animal that you're sacrificing. I have taken your iniquity away. And, look at the end of verse 4, and I will clothe you in pure vestments. Pure there. The word there is holy. For holy, righteous vestments. I will not just take away your sin. I just haven't taken off your old garments so you're standing naked before the Lord. Instead, now I take off your filthy garments and I give to you the pure vestments that you need to be holy and righteous in God's sight. Oh, that we would know and remember that we have been chosen by Him. That we have our sin removed by Him. And then that He has clothed us in righteousness. What, what moment in your Christian life could ever be anything but glorious, could ever be anything but abundant and fruitful, what trial could you possibly go through that couldn't be conquered by the realization that your Lord has chosen you, that the Lord has taken your sin away from you, that your Lord has clothed you in righteousness? Verse 5, Zechariah gets into this. He's so excited. He's seeing this happen. And he says, I want everything to take place Verse 5, he says, so I said, this is Zechariah now jumps in on this, and says, don't stop with just the clothes. Put a clean turban on his head. Okay, a clean turban on his head is a turban. You guys have a picture of what a turban is. It's a head wrap that he has there. And the priest, one of the things that the priest did, one of the essential parts of his garment, uh, in addition to the robe, the breastplate, the undergarment, all that kind of stuff, was a linen 
turban. And so he would have a turban, but it was very special. It was golden, had gold woven through it. It was a very special turban that he would wear on his head. And what made it real special was that there was a plate right in front of it, sewed right into the front with some words written on it. A plate right is there. Now, the priest, one of the priest's jobs, the high priest's jobs, was that he needed to get into the Holy of Holies once a year for the Day of Atonement in order to present himself before the Lord. And in order to get into the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies was was barred away from the rest of the, the world by huge tapestries, by huge carpets hanging down from the ceiling and stuff like that. And so you'd have to weave your way through the carpets, and, you know, overlapping car- carpets, so you'd have to weave your way through in order to get into the Holy of Holies. So here it is, the priest is carrying, you know, the sacrifice. He's walking into the Holy of Holies. Imagine how he goes in there. He's got to weave his way through the carpets and stuff like that. My guess is that you don't enter by, you know, first you put your right foot in. And you put your left foot in. You know, you don't kind of slip yourself into God's presence that way. How do you do it? You open up the curtains, and what do you stick in first? Stick in your head first. Stick your head in first, and God is sitting in the Holy of Holies there waiting to meet with Him, says, okay, who is that coming in the door? And the first thing He sees is the clean white turban with the front platelet that's written across the front of it, holy unto the Lord. This man is holy unto the Lord. Put a clean turban upon him so that he announces to the world what he knows to be true because what God has said about him, this man is holy unto the Lord. Oh, that we would face every difficulty in life. Oh, that I would experience every minute of my life. Oh, that you would experience every minute of your life realizing that you have been chosen by your God. That you have had your iniquity removed by your God. That you have had His cleanness, His holiness given to you. And He has declared you to be holy in His sight. Don't listen to the lies. Don't listen to Him when He lies to you and says that you're not right with God. God has made you right with Him. God has called you to this life. God has called you to a life of holiness. God has called you to that abundant, rich, overwhelming Christian life that the Scriptures describe. Yes, He has called you to it because He has chosen you. He has removed your sin. He has given to you His righteousness. And He has declared you to be holy in His sight. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that You would shape our our minds, that You would shape our lives so that we would not depend on what we think of ourselves, that we would not listen to Satan's lies, that we would not listen to the lies of one another. But rather, Lord, we would know for sure and live for sure according to what You have declared us to be. That the only thing that matters is that You have chosen us as Your children. That You have removed our sin. That You have clothed us with righteousness. And that You have declared us to be holy. Lord, we want to live that very life. That life that You have laid out for us. So help us, Lord, not to be convinced by what we feel, 
or what we think, but only to be convinced by that which we know to be true, that you have spoken to us in your word, in which we put our faith and trust, now and forever. Amen. This text does a wonderfully great job of describing who we are. We are what God has decided us to be. This text does a great job of describing who saves us. It is not us. It is God. This text does a great job of describing how God will save us. Sorry, what God does to save us. He removes our sin. He gives to us His righteousness. What this text doesn't touch on is how God's going to do that. 400 years later after this text, we learn that that takes place on the cross of Jesus Christ. That it is there that that blessing, that glorious gift, comes to us in its fullness. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we remind ourselves of when we come to the table. Communion is a common unity. It's that spot where we flush away every other voice and we hear only God and we hear Him through the partaking of the bread and the juice and all we hear is that reassurance of affirmation that we belong to the Lord. Consequently, we have an open table of communion here. That is, that at Hebron we invite everybody who has proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ to come to this table. You don't have to be Presbyterian. You don't have to be a part of Hebron Church. You need to have committed your life to Jesus Christ. If you have not, I would encourage you to let the elements pass you by to spend that time and say, Lord, who do you really see me as? Do you see me? as one of your own, and listen to his voice, for he will call you to himself. For all the rest of us who are following the Lord, please join us now at the table of our God together.